0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is James. I'm the worship director here at Holy Cross. We want to welcome you, uh, to, and thank you for joining us in our time of worship today. Uh, Pete's away, so second week in a row for me. Uh, I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to preach consecutively, so this is a treat for me. Um, Yeah, I just want to dive right into our sermon today. Um, We started this new series a couple weeks ago, The Person and Work of Jesus from Garden to City. And we're unfolding Jesus' story throughout the book of Scripture and throughout the Bible and how we see Jesus in every part of Scripture. And so we want to do that today as well. So just to start out, um, have you ever been face-to-face with danger? Great way to start out, right? Life-threatening situation, or just a situation where you felt immense fear, or anxiety, or even anger. For me, the most recent dramatic episode of that was probably last summer. I led a team of nine people to Peru for a short-term mission trip, where we had a great relationship with a missionary down there, and so we used to take a team from my previous church. We used to take a team every summer. Um, and Peru is about three times larger than California, if you didn't know. And so there's a lot of travel that's involved as you're going to places. Um, and one of the jungle villages we, we visited required a transfer from the capital city, Lima, to a small little airport in a city called Tarapoto. And from there, we take a six-hour bus ride. And then from there, you get off the bus and you take a three-hour boat ride. And so just to say you're traveling all day nonstop to get to this one location and you know we go there because we have a relationship with that village but after our trip to this jungle village you have to come out of the jungle village so you have to do that all all that traveling again in reverse order and at this tiny little airport in Tarapoto after we spent a week in the jungle just working and doing physical labor we face some trials there One of my team members had been carrying a backpack, and it had his Bible, his journal, about $500 in cash, a laptop, a camera, and a photo printer that prints out little Polaroids. Um, And you're probably thinking you probably shouldn't bring all that stuff on a mission trip. Um, But, you know, he had the sweetest intentions because he, he went to the same trip before, the year before, and he really had the intention of providing for these children at the orphanage that our missionary runs and so he was trying to take pictures for them and, and print them out so that they could remember us and remember the moments and that And that he would be able to make a monetary contribution. So he, he, he had a purpose for bringing all that in his backpack He left that backpack on a little luggage cart one of the luggage carts we had, and when he, when we weren't looking, when all nine of us just—I don't know where we were, I don't know what we were doing—but we turned around, I guess, and somebody came up from behind us and stole the bag. And it's crazy because we saw video footage. He just came up and just threw his jacket on, like casually, on the on the bag, and then next second he just looked around and then walked away with the bag. Um, this caused a lot of mayhem in the, in the airport because the airport was like the size of this room. And <laughs> we were just running around trying to look for this guy. There's probably like one security camera that's like from the 1980s or something. And so it was a tough time. And our team was just, yeah, distraught. I mean, we, we lost, he lost something that had a lot of sentimental value in his Bible and journal. And then just all the financial losses that he took in that loss. Just to give closure to that story, we never found the bag. Um, we never caught the guy. But the team was able to bond through the experience, and so that was um, crazy. And the whole story made local news, and you know, his picture, the guy's picture was plastered everywhere in Peru. Um, and the footage of that theft is on YouTube forever, so we'll, <laughs> we'll always remember that. But it was really an event where it filled us with anxiety, it filled us with anger. It filled us with fear. And when we reacted, some of our guys you know, trying to be you know, protecting the team, we <laughs> sprinted out, outside the airport as if we were going to chase this guy, Mission Impossible style. And we tried to run out the airport and look around for the bag. And you know, obviously, we're not going to find them after five, five, 10 minutes of the bag being lost. But that was our reaction—instantly, just wanting to take this issue and trying to resolve it right away. Just like that, in the in the in the face of a perceived harmful event, or attack, or a threat to survival, a reaction takes place within us, and often is described as fight or flight response. And some of us try to fight. You know, I put that in you know air quotes because it's easy to look like you're going to fight when. The enemies already run away. Um, But um, in our passage today, I want to observe this response and how Jesus responds to um, an impending threat. His harmful event was a little bit more dramatic than what I went through. You might have heard of it, it's called the crucifixion. And so Jesus responds to this in such a way that is informative for us, that is going to shape us in, in, in a way that glorifies him and that brings out the gospel in our lives. And so let's dive into our passage today. It comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. This is the word of the Lord. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Just to give a little background on our text. At this time, the Passover feast was taking place. And Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was going to come, for his own departure. He was about to face something so horrific that's never been seen. And in this way, it's helpful because we have the whole Bible, because we know what happens, just like Jesus knew what was going to happen. And as he's preparing his disciples for his departure and for this impending attack a couple things take place. A couple things unfold in this chapter. The plot to kill Jesus builds up and it thickens as Judas conspires with the chief priests and, and the officers. Jesus tells his disciples that someone will betray him, which leads to an argument. Not mainly about who's going to betray him, but in Luke's account of the story, they're, they're also arguing at the same time about who is going to be the greatest and so there's a, there's a whole another message in there of just what they're arguing about in this time. And leading up to our text, Jesus also institutes the Lord's Supper. He passes the cup with wine, which he signifies as his blood shed for them. And he breaks the bread and he passes it around, which signifies his body broken for them. He also foretells Peter's threefold denial of Jesus at the crucifixion. And so it's important to note all that takes place because his disciples repeatedly, time and time again, in each episode, seem to be completely uninterested and unconcerned or unaware of what's going to happen to Jesus, this tragedy that he's describing and that he's trying to prepare them for. But what we also see in our passage is that Jesus is trying to prepare himself. He's about to fully take on the mantle of the title of our sermon today, Jesus Christ the Suffering Servant. And I think for us, just as an athlete would do well to study a more well-accomplished athlete, to understand how they prepare, to understand their inner workings of their mind, their approach to the game, the things that they see, the things that they game plan for. I think we as children of God would do well to see how Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Our Lord and our Master, how he prepared himself for immense suffering, that he would be called the suffering servant, in turn, call us to suffer with him. And so in this passage, I want to observe three attributes about Jesus, about him as a suffering servant. Compassion, agony, and commitment. And how these attributes work together to show Jesus as truly the suffering servant. Firstly, it's the compassion of the suffering servant. Compassion is probably not one of the first words you think about when you want to describe a suffering servant. I would imagine maybe misery, pain, sorrow. I mentioned agony is something that we're going to talk about. Or even humility as someone that can bite down and brace for pain and just go through what they encounter. So compassion, it's not an idea that we would normally associate with suffering. And yet that's how our Lord suffers first and foremost. A gracious display of compassion. Compassion that's not just dressed up in the form of pity, but compassion that's of deep concern for the world's suffering, for his disciples' suffering, for the others' sufferings. His care of the deep brokenness Of the world and his desire to restore it and so it comes out in his compassion this is the compassion of jesus as he falls to his knees to pray our version of compassion is different it's a little different because what jesus does really brings to light what is different about our compassion because all of us care about people all of us care about somebody in our lives whether that's one person or ten people Um, whether that's your spouse, your kids, your family, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your best friends who knows your deep, darkest secrets. We care for people in our lives and we show compassion to them in their times of suffering. But think about our own circumstances. And when we show compassion, it tends to be in times where things in our life is relatively in order compared to the other person who is going through the suffering. When we ourselves have something out of order, when we ourselves are disheveled and displaced, it's hard to show this kind of compassion where you think about someone else first, to show real, genuine affection, to, real, to show real, genuine care for someone else when your own life isn't in order as you would see. It's so difficult to show compassion when your own problems loom so large compared to anybody else's. I mean how hard is it really to care for someone, to care for your friend's, you know, issues, quarreling with their coworker when you are on perhaps brink of being fired or something like that. You know, how hard is it to care for another human being, being if you are diagnosed with the terminal illness, you know? There's just that comparison of my trouble right now is so much bigger than what you're going through, and we place ourselves above another person without even thinking about it. And so our compassion is it's readily available when someone needs it, but when something goes slightly wrong in our lives, our attention turns to ourselves, and we have no time for anybody else. And what we see is that Jesus' compassion is drastically different. Picture the scene of Jesus' prayer. He goes into prayer, and he's contemplating. He's thinking about the suffering that he already knows is coming to him. I mean, if there was a huge problem that anybody ever had to deal with, it's taking on the sins of mankind. It's being separated from God the Father. It's dying on the cross. It's being tortured and mocked and humiliated. And to be put to death in such a gruesome and violent way. Such a large problem. And what we see is that as he's going to approach God in prayer for this problem, his first and foremost concern is for his disciples before anything else. He says to them before he goes into prayer, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's not saying pray for me because I need it pray for me because I'm about to deal with something big something serious you have no idea but he says first pray for yourselves that you may not enter into temptation and you see the depth of Jesus' prayer in John's gospel where he he prays I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus, first and foremost, concerns himself with the spiritual and eternal well-being of his disciples, of his friends, before going to the Lord to protest his own fate. And so Jesus' compassion is one that actively demonstrates the self-sacrificial love of the gospel, it's Christ who did not count equality with God to be, to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Even in his incarnation, we're to see that his compassion was lived out so much so that this creator God, God of the universe, becomes flesh and blood to care for his people on an intimate level, to deal with his people on an intimate level, and to redeem his people. It's also Christ who clearly had the bigger problems here at this point, but he first and foremost just deals with the spiritual protection of his people, that they would be guarded against the devil. This is the compassion that we ought to strive for to have, but oftentimes we end up seeming more like the disciples who, they were a stone's throw away, as the text describes, meaning that they're probably far enough where Jesus was isolated and he was praying by himself but how far can you throw a stone meaning Jesus was probably close enough to them where they could see him visually and they could hear him perhaps but what happened to the disciples even as they're hearing him pray is they fell asleep this not only describes how they acted in that moment but it captures the posture of our hearts We attend church week to week. We fellowship with other believers. And yet, we get bogged down in our own issues, our own worries, and we fall asleep, falling away from God, ignorant to what God is doing in and around our lives. I mean, what perfect contrast can we see to Jesus' perfect compassion sleep sleep itself you know it's not a bad thing we all need sleep we are designed to sleep and it's designed to give us rest but when we're falling asleep when we're told when we're instructed to be vigilant and to pray that you may not enter into temptation it's just the most backwards thing you can do in in the action of what Jesus is doing praying for others first showing this kind of compassion And so we want to show this compassion that Jesus shows instead of the disciples. But the first point of the Bible, in anything that we read, and anything that we learn, it's never to say, be like this. First and foremost, the point of the Bible is to say, look at Jesus. Look at the compassion that he shows us in the face of his own suffering, in the face of his own pain. We're to be encouraged and strengthened by this, not put down. We're, we're able to strive for this kind of compassion only because the Bible tells us that Christ unites us to himself and the power that he gives to us through the Holy Spirit, to pow- the power to live and act as God's people, full of compassion. It's an understanding that's not within us, but outside of ourselves, And we need to look to Christ to gather this strength. We're able to show this kind of compassion because we have been shown this compassion ourselves. And so this leads to the second attribute of the suffering servant we observe as he prays, which is the hardest part, I think, the agony of the suffering servant. We're told in verse 44 that Jesus experiences agony as he prays. In fact, the mention of agony that he feels comes after he is strengthened by an angel in verse 43. And so what is this agony? What is this suffering and pain? Why is he feeling this way if he was just strengthened? Why is he in agony? And for one, he's, if he's truly God, why is he feeling agony at all? Shouldn't pain be nothing to God? Well, there's multiple sources of Jesus' is agony here. And one source is his loneliness. Currently, right now, in his moment of prayer, he's experiencing loneliness because he retreats by himself to go into prayer. But the loneliness isn't the physical isolation, perhaps. But it's more so that he is going into prayer and he is asking his br- brothers to pray alongside him, and yet they've fallen asleep and they've fallen into the temptation. And so they're not with him in prayer in this moment as Jesus is praying. And this loneliness, this temptation, or this temptation is so, is so great that he probably needed community to support him and to pray with him. mean how hard would it have been for Jesus to go pray somewhere else because this is ultimately the betrayal where it takes place and Judas knows that he frequents this Mount of Olives and so Judas is expecting for Jesus to be there to betray him there and how hard would it have been for Jesus to go to a different garden or different place to pray to avoid this betrayal how hard would it have been in a time with no security cameras and no technology, to just run away, to escape the fate that he's going to suffer. And imagine the temptation when you have the foresight of knowing what's going to unfold in your life, when you know the tragedy that's about to befall you. Imagine the temptation, how easy it would have been to avoid that responsibility. There must have been a part of Jesus that really wanted to run away. I imagine because he is human, and he cries out to the, cries out to God to remove this cup from him, and so there is a part of him where he is wanting to avoid this fate, and he's going to go through this moment by himself. He's facing this alone, but not only is he alone in this time of prayer, but in the crucifixion, as we know, he's alone because his disciples begin to deny him. His disciples begin to flee away. I mean, even, even to the point of him dying and his body being taken down, not by one of his disciples, but we're introduced to a brand new character in the Bible at that moment, a man named Joseph who asks for his body. And perhaps they knew each other, but the fact that he's just died, and the people that bring down his body are not his closest friends. He's abandoned by those who associate with him. He's abandoned by his friends. He's abandoned also by the ones he came to save the society of people that he came to save. He came to preach the gospel. He's abandoned on this great, grander scale because he came to save these people, the broken sinners that he had come to redeem for himself and to God's kingdom. Now crucifying him, mocking him, abandoning him, even in this moment of utter and complete abandonment. This is Jesus' prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, how tragic is that? He dies pleading for the forgiveness of others, for the forgiveness of those who have put him in that predicament the crowds that followed him, that listened to him, his disciples, his enemies, all those who were around him, all those he came to save, abandoning him so harshly that he dies this death and there is a wall between the wall of death between them. And to add on to that, to all that suffering, all that loneliness and abandonment is the abandonment by the Father. Because jesus at the moment of crucifixion at the the time of the crucifixion the father turns his face away from him from the son they've never been separated like this never was there a barrier of sin of shame of guilt of death between the father and the son but because jesus came to become the sacrifice to take on the sins of others The Father must forsake him because he is a holy God and he's not present in the midst of sin. And so it's this abandonment, it's this separation from the Father and from the rest of the world, from the people that he came to save. It's this abandonment that Jesus knew was going to happen. It's this abandonment Jesus wanted for him to pass from him. And Jesus experiences abandonment and this agony in his loneliness so that we would never have to be lonely just like that not only is there agony and loneliness but he also takes on burden burden that isn't originally his to bear burden that wasn't ever his it's it's challenging when you form relationships to care for another person to carry their burdens even just one other person to take on all their troubles to listen to them to hear them out and to have deep care and deep thought for another person, that takes a lot of of energy. It's a lot of burden. And it's a burden that we often learn to bear together. But in this moment where Jesus is completely isolated by himself, spiritually and physically, this is a burden that he takes on for himself, this burden of deep compassion for the things of this world, for the people of this world, and for us, it's a little easier when things are going well, when things are going good, and people in your life have awesome things to share. And that's usually encouraging. Those burdens are, you know, bring it on. But to take on the burdens of humanity where it's all the ugly bits, all the, all the bad parts, all the broken things, I don't think there's a way that we can describe this burden, how it must have weighed down Jesus But it's certainly unbearable. It's certainly too great for us. And to take on the burden of humanity, Jesus becomes complete agony, completely agonized in this moment. And Apostle Paul describes it this way for us, that Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And for Jesus... The sinless and perfect servant to become sin for us, that sort of burden causes agony. Just constant state of wrestling with sin, to be brought down so low and so far removed from God because of the burden that he had to carry. And he wouldn't be just, I mean, he's completely a perfect suffering servant if we ended right there. But then to add on to top. Add on top of all of that, all of that spiritual and emotional pain and suffering, there is really the reality of physical burden, physical pain, physical suffering that he goes to bear for himself for us on the, on the way to the cross and on the cross itself. There is a reality to what Jesus goes through because he's fully human. It speaks to his humanity because he experiences all this physical pain. It it makes him to experience every single scrape and bruise and cut. That there is a broken world. And that we live in this broken world where we experience pain and suffering. And so Jesus, instead of just saying, I'm going to snap my fingers and make it all go away instead of doing that, he comes down to our level and he says, I'm going to experience this and I'm going to suffer with you. And all of this agony, and probably more that I can't describe so that you know we don't get brought down too much with the talk of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion, but all this agony points to something Because this is the only time in the New Testament where a writer uses this word talking about being in agony. And I think it's really meant to convey a really deep sense of suffering that's unlike anything else that we see in Scripture or in life. And you see that. You see how Jesus responds to that. There's a real sense of fear in his prayer. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. But... Jesus is ultimately not in agony of just fearing death. He's ultimately in agony because because of the separation that he encounters, because of the burden that he bears. And it's ultimately Jesus who, in all of this, he embraces the agony that's one of his responses. He embraces the constant state of suffering, the constant state of wrestling with sin, the constant state of wrestling with pain. He doesn't just push it away. He asks that it's removed from him, but ultimately he, he, he submits, and he says, let your will be done. Jesus is not fearing death. Jesus is fearing this constant state of pain that he must be in, the separation that he must have. And it's weird to say that someone can embrace agony because agony inherently means that you're wrestling, you're, you're, you're struggling with something. But that's the path that the Lord chooses, to submit to that struggling and to be in that constant state of, of struggling This is key for us because we can, in the opposite sense, relate to it very well. Because for many of us, the American life is all that we've known. And for me, even personally, I've lived in Korea for eight years of my childhood. But for the large majority of my life, I grew up here. And for many Americans, we're so deeply programmed to seek out comfort. The advancement of technology combined with the resources that we have available to us abundantly, it's made us adverse to struggling. The idea of being in a state of struggling or un- being uncomfortable. I mean, we really do have a lot of practical solutions for us. You know, I don't know if you've noticed because you know I've just recently moved here, but it gets a little hot in Arizona, <laughs> and for that we have air conditioning it's miserable when you don't have that we have internet access almost anywhere you go and it, it in turn because you have internet access you have access to all kinds of information probably in all of humanity and we have social media networks through that internet connection we have constant forms of connectivity we have apps and smart devices that do everything for us literally um, to remotely control our level of comfort, whether it's your smart thermostat, smart vacuum, I don't know, the little Roomba thing, smart TV, smart microwave. There's, there's all kinds of appliances and devices and things that we can add to our lives. A lot of people have Alexa now. Um, you know, there's just so many things that add to the way that we view our comfort and the way that we pad it up so that we're constantly comfortable. I know the extent of this because I have a mug. It's a smart mug. And it tells me when my, when my coffee's at the perfect drinking temperature of 135 degrees. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm guilty of it, too. We're opposed to the very idea of being in discomfort. You know, when my AC broke last month, I think a lot of people came up and was like, how, how are you doing? Did you get your AC back? Um, and I was in constant contact with my office my apartment office until it got fixed and it, it got fixed in three days But I was constantly just Calling them every every couple hours like hey, are you guys coming to fix the AC today? Um, and, and I'm in no way condemning these things obviously because I have some of these things um, So don't go home and destroy your AC units, but It should really open the open our eyes to the reality that we live in today We don't like the idea of agony we don't like the idea of suffering where we have to constantly wrestle with discomfort we would rather take it head on and fix the issue or we would rather flee from the issue and just table it tuck it away it's fight or flight but the response of christ was that he became a suffering servant actively suffering he chooses the path of agony and pain in order that the will of the Father would be accomplished. In order that he could walk in obedience to God regardless of what that meant for himself. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to walk in the same way. That even though sin is present in our lives, we strive to become the same kind of suffering servants, choosing obedience over comfort, choosing agony over our own will or desire and so this leads us to Jesus' last attribute in this passage the commitment that he shows as the suffering servant I mean I think it can be it can be we can go without saying it that there is a lot of commitment being shown in how he chooses to go through agony how he chooses to submit to God's will but not only that, he shows commitment to God. He shows commitment to the will of God in His word and His deed. And so at the end of Jesus's prayer, at the end of Jesus' prayer time, we see him come out and meet his disciples, and he finds them sleeping. Surely, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, if I saw that, and I just told him to pray like a couple minutes ago. I would come out and reprimand them. I would come out and say, hey, what are you guys doing? Why aren't you praying with me? But Jesus' first thought is to clarify or reemphasize his first point. And he just says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so Jesus is ultimately committed, not for the disciples to just do whatever he says, but he's committed to the cause of God to the cause of God redeeming his people, to bringing his children back to him, to accomplishing what he wants to do, what God wants to do, even at the most small and basic level. And looking at Jesus' prayer, we read his words, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, of how I feel, how I'm really not looking forward to this thing that's going to happen, the suffering that you laid out before me, I'm not looking forward to that. But even so, let your will be done. And so he prays this to God, and he reiterates his point to his disciples in speaking out truth and in, in speaking out his commitment for God's will. But even in his actions, because it's interesting that his actions mirror his words. You know, it's not something that we see in the Bible that often, if you think about it, that a lot of people in the Bible constantly over and over and over again say we love you God we want to be your people you are God and then they turn around and do exactly what God has commanded them not to do but Jesus in his word and his action he mirrors everything perfectly perfect obedience and he demonstrates that for us and he's saying you can't do it so here let me do it on your behalf And to further show his commitment in his prayer, Jesus kneels down. And this might be a detail that we gloss over, but it's so important because it was so uncommon in that time. It directly contrasts and opposes the posture that the Pharisees would take in their prayer. Their prayers were public for everyone to see, for everyone to hear, standing tall and proud, proclaiming loudly these holy prayers. And we see Jesus do the opposite thing. He retreats away into a quiet place, falls down on his knees. And in other gospels, other gospel accounts, they describe him as falling to his face. And so he falls down. And when someone falls down to their knees, you get a sense of urgency and desperation, of begging and pleading and weeping. That's the way that Jesus is described, that he falls down to his knees to pray. There's commitment even in his physical actions. And the last bit of detail that we, we want to note in verse 43, an angel comes to him to strengthen him. And this really shows that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, he was at the end of his own strength as a human. His friends had abandoned him. They're sleeping. And so he received divine help at this time angels angel comes down to him and gives him strength we're not sure what that really looks like or what that's like in the way that it's played out in a human person but we're told that he's strengthened and instead of taking this time to say oh i've done my prayer i've done my part let's get some rest i'm about to go through a lot of suffering Instead of resting in this state of weakness, he turns around and he prays. He continues to push forward, and it says that he prays even more earnestly. Luke describes Jesus to be sweating so profusely that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling down. I mean, no one sweats like this, not even if you sit in the sauna for too long. Like, no one sweats where It's gushing out, and Jesus pushes himself to the point of human limits, staying committed to the will of the Father, physically committing himself, and so there's commitment that we see Jesus in every facet to carry out the will of God. And to conclude, it's really hard for pastors to come up with a solid application every week, because... Not that there aren't enough ways that we can change and grow, but the gospel, the whole point of the gospel when we're unfolding God's story, when we're telling the story of God, is to emphasize God's grace and to remind us that it's not our own doing. Nothing that we do points to God. And so we point to Christ as our, as our desperation, as our Hail Mary. We, we point to Christ to say, this is our answer. This is the key. That's the ultimate realization for us because grace is the driving force behind our salvation. And, yeah, as pastors, it's hard to come up with applications because that's the goal. That's, that's what we want to see every single week, that people would point to Christ because we can't do it ourselves. And from there, you know, what more application can, we, can be given because we just told you, you can't do it. Um, look to God. Look to Jesus. He is our Redeemer who pays the price for our salvation. He clothes us and He rescues us and restores us. But Jesus, the suffering servant, calls us to one thing that is true in our lives. There's suffering everywhere because it's a broken world they're suffering in all of our lives it's like air and water it's an unavoidable part of our lives it's a part of what we must go through we must suffer because we live in this fallen world and with fallen things and fallen people but we must also suffer not just because of the reality of that but because Jesus did because our Lord did We suffer because God's taken what was supposed to be the result of our sin and he uses it to sanctify us. Meaning, he takes this suffering that came about because of the fallenness of the world. The suffering came into the world because of sin. And instead of allowing that to be the result, he takes that suffering and uses it to mature us. He uses it to sanctify us and purify us. And so we suffer because God uses it, and we suffer because God matures us through it. And We suffer because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, the steadfastness that Jesus modeled as he cries out, not my will, but yours be done. We suffer because suffering is not a sign that God hates you just like we know that the opposite isn't true. I mean you know that when you're in a hurry and all the traffic lights turn green, it's not a magic sign of God <laughs> blessing you in that moment. It's it's not your children turning out to be these handsome and beautiful people, successful. It, these things out of our control and we attribute we don't we don't regularly attribute that to oh, it's just because God favors me versus that other person who's going through suffering. We don't think that. And so the opposite of that is true. Because while all things are in God's control, we submit to that. God is sovereign. While all things are in his control, God's ultimate goal is not for our earthly comfort, but rather our eternal security. He wants to secure his people for his kingdom for a renewed, a restored kingdom. Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson makes this point that Christians, you are winners, indeed. But our ultimate prize, our ultimate reward for being a winner, it's not here. It's waiting on the other side. It's waiting on the other side of suffering. Another theologian A.W. Tozer writes that we all want to be saved but we insist that Christ do all the dying no cross for us no dethronement no dying Jesus the suffering servant suffers not just for the sake of suffering not just to you know claim that title as suffering servant but for God's will to be fulfilled that's his ultimate end goal. And as followers of Jesus, I encourage all of us, all of you, to take these words of Jesus from Mark 8 to heart as we close. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Friends, I encourage you to strive to become a suffering servant, a servant who suffers well For the sake of the Gospel. Suffering, it's not the ultimate bad thing. Suffer well by showing compassion. During your suffering, we show compassion by putting others before ourselves, as Christ did. Suffer well by being in agony, by wrestling with the suffering, knowing that God's will is the primary objective and that instead of fighting with our own will and trying to make our own solutions or instead of just folding and crumbling at the sight of suffering, that we instead look to Christ to see His will unfold, to see His plan unfold and to endure it as Christ did. Suffer well, lastly, by remaining steadfast, remaining committed in both your word and deed, just as Christ did for us. Know that the ultimate suffering, the final suffering, was spared from us because of Jesus, and that God is transforming all broken things to be new. And so I hope that you're encouraged by that, that we suffer together, and that in this community, that we're not adverse to the idea of suffering because Jesus did it, and we suffer well because Jesus calls us to, and as we suffer and as we face these trials head on that Jesus sanctifies us makes us new and continues to prepare us and mature us until his coming. Let's pray.